Welcome to Lifeside Beat. My name's Karan, the host of today's episode. Before jumping into my conversation with Unkit, I wanted to announce that early bird tickets are live for the annual Warren Healthcare Business Conference. The Warren Healthcare Conference is one of the largest healthcare MBA conferences in the country, with more than 500 healthcare executives, Wharton alumni, students, and faculty attending annually. This year, it'll take place February 16th and 17th at the Lowe's Hotel in Philadelphia. This year's theme is the empowered healthcare consumer. How can the healthcare industry meet rising expectations? The panels will cover diverse sectors of the healthcare industry, including patient care, pharmaceutical development, investor perspectives, and the role of AI in digital health. Early bird tickets sales end December 21st and include breakfast, lunch, a networking happy hour, and some conference merchandise. Check out the link on all our platform pages for tickets. On today's episode, I spoke with Ankit Mahadevia, the CEO of Sparrow Therapeutics and a member of the board of directors at the company as well. He was formerly a venture partner in the life sciences group at Atlas Ventures, where he led the formation of eight different companies focused on novel drug discovery and therapeutic products, leading three of them as active CEO. Prior to joining Atlas, he worked in business development at a variety of smaller biotech companies as well as in big pharma. He also worked in consulting at McKinsey & Company and the Monitor Group. Ankit began his career in healthcare policy with various roles in the government and served on the advisory council for the NIH Center for Advancing Translational Studies. In September of this year, he published a book entitled Quiet Leader, Loud Results, How Quiet Leaders Drive Outcomes That Speak for Themselves. Please join me in welcoming Ankit to LifeSide Beat. Hi, Ankit. Thanks so much for joining us here today on LifeSide Beat. Yeah, thanks, Karen. Great, great to be here. We'd love to start off with an icebreaker we do with many of our guests regarding where you're from and what you wanted to be when you grew up. Uh, so I'm uh, Chicago born and raised. So my my parents immigrated from India in the 70s. And the reason they came was my dad had two uh, offers for school to study engineering. One was from University of Illinois. The other one was from Berkeley. And, and his decision logic for choosing was that he had uh, a third cousin in Ohio, and that seemed closer on the map than California. So he ended up at the U of I. And so kind of by extension, he ended up finding his first job out of uh, graduate school in Chicago. That's where I was born on the north side in Lincoln Park. And we uh, lived for you know, a number of years in Rogers Park, which is the northernmost neighborhood in the city where a lot of folks of South Asian descent uh, are. Then we moved to the suburbs. Uh, for me, for the longest time, you know, my dad's younger brother, uh, you know, did his residency actually at the hospital where I was born and he was a physician. So for the longest time, I got to observe kind of how, uh, what kind of career he had. And I thought early on that I wanted to be a physician as well. I think my parents still have drawings I made for school of the heart and other organs and that sort of thing. And so, you know, healthcare has always been a, a big focus area of mine. And and then over time, as uh, and this was particularly as healthcare reform came up the first time in the 90s, I started to think a little more broadly. And you know, again, listening to my uncle dealing with managed care and the like, you know, I kind of thought again, do I want to be a physician or do I want to do something else? And and that's kind of how I took my um, my focus into college, where I, uh, as you'll notice, a theme did a little bit of everything. I majored in both biology and economics to kind of understand the world around me and also understand science because I figured I was going to be a doctor at some point, but I wasn't sure if that's all I wanted to do. Yeah. I think on that note, I know you took sort of an interesting path before ultimately starting med school. Would love to hear about some of those decisions and what that journey was like. Yeah. You know, it's, it was, uh, gosh, um, uh, almost 
10 to 15 years of really trying to do different things to figure out what it is I wanted to do. You know, I knew big picture that I wanted to be in healthcare. The idea of making people that are sick feel better really just fundamentally attracted me. And, and, you know, uh, the other thing that was interesting was thinking about kind of how people behave the way they do in bigger systems like governments and organizations. And so, you know, my undergraduate thesis in college was actually in health economics about how hospitals behave the way they do based on whether they're nonprofit or for-profit and ended up publishing some. And so, you, you know, I, I had gone to college and, you, you know, it, it had joined a program at Northwestern where they held a place for you at the medical school. So I figured since I was playing with house money, I would take a couple of years to uh, try something different. So my thesis advisor, who who's a, you know, was my mentor actually hooked me up with a prior a graduate student of his who ran the healthcare division at the government accountability office. And what the GAO does is that they essentially serve as Congress's consulting arm and they dive into strategic projects for the Congress and, and write reports and make recommendations. And so, you know, for a good, you know, a good bit of time, I was working with them on Medicare policy and then the economy improved and I had an opportunity to go back to Monitor Group, which was the consulting for my join. And then I went there and worked quite a bit on uh, healthcare strategy assignments. So helping a big drug eluding stent maker launch its first drug eluding stent when there was already one in the market. And, you know, by that period of time, I felt like I had gotten a kind of basic grounding in, you know, how to be a professional, uh, in how to be in, in business and in policy and I really had to choose what I wanted to do. Did I want to go deeper into the consulting career and kind of, you know, get broader and lead teams? Oh, did I want to go into policy or did I want to go back to med school? And, you know, I kind of thought about it and said that, you know, it's now or never for medical training because I didn't, you know, I, I did end up in med school knowing folks who were in their 40s and 50s training, but I didn't want that to be me. And so I kind of said, well, but I don't necessarily want to stay in Chicago. So I, I you know, applied around and my, um, you know, girlfriend, then now wife, uh, you know, was working for a U.S. senator. So there were a few places that would make sense and I ended up at Johns Hopkins, uh, you know, one, because the, you know, it was a, a new place to learn from and the clinical education was strong. And also, you know, it happened to be close to D.C., which was, you know, helpful. And, you know, over there, I did more of the same, which is I knew I wanted to be in healthcare. I was learning a lot. You know, Hopkins really just gives you a very short, about a year long set of kind of preclinical exercise. And then they just throw you in the pool in terms of, you know, being in the clinic, which was great. You learned a lot early. Uh, but then I took a lot of time away because I said, well, once I get on this residency and fellowship train, it's not going to stop for a while. So let, let me see what else is out there and be really sure that seeing patients is what I want to do. So I did a variety of things in the middle. Um, you know, I went to Capitol Hill and worked for Ted Kennedy in the health committee office for a while. And we worked on uh, the last pandemic, avian flu, and we worked on Medicaid and Medicare. Uh, I went to McKinsey and, you know, worked with them in their health services practice because I hadn't done that before. I uh, helped the hospital think about how to consolidate with other hospitals I worked with a mentor at Hopkins who was starting a company, uh, which ultimately was VC-backed and was the first VC-backed company I'd ever been a part of, and then uh, decided that I liked enough of this kind of meshment of policy and 
business that you know I thought maybe I should learn more about it and you know applied and got into the Wharton healthcare program um and even there I, I did a variety of different things I just my philosophy's been you don't know whether you're going to like something until you try it so you know I tried everything so at this point I've tried policy consulting uh, in different flavors uh, we were consulting for a leveraged buyout firm so I also had some LBO exposure I had tried company formation and now within the Wharton environment, I took it a variety of other odd jobs also because paying for med school and business school at the same time is expensive. So, you know, getting some salary was helpful. So I worked for Safeguard, which is a Pennsylvania based VC firm and helped them screen deals. I worked on consulting with some, you know, new company formation ideas out of Penn. Um, when I was in my summer, I did a couple of internships. I was at uh, Genentech. And I continued that relationship throughout business school and learned how to do deals. And then I was also worked for uh, Vanda, which was a mid-cap biotech at the time. And, you know, by this time now, I've done pharma, BD, I've done biotech. I've had a taste of consulting, leverage buyouts, VC. And, you know, everybody, my dean at Hopkins, um, June, uh, you know, my wife, my now now wife at times says, you probably should make a decision and figure out what you're doing. You can't kind of see every movie. And so I took some time to really call a lot of Wharton alums and said, you know, kind of ask everybody, you chose this particular path. What do you think? Would you recommend it? Would you not? And ultimately, you know, I had a couple of choices. I could go back to McKinsey. I could go to Genentech. I could uh, go to residency, which my dean really wanted me to do. And I could um, do something else. And so I took my time as business school was winding up and med school was winding up to try a few different things. And I ended up getting a job offer at a VC firm. I ended up getting a job offer at a, a hedge fund and, you know, and had to compare all of that. And so, again, you know, I had a hard time committing. But really what tipped me was I ended up taking an offer to join Atlas Venture as an associate. And I figured that it was the most uncommitted step of all of them because I could still be involved with forming new companies. I'd learned something new in terms of going deeper in VC and the discussion I'd had with them, you know, is, is that, you know, you take it in kind of year increments. And I figured if it was a bad idea, I could always come back and do my, uh, my training at Hopkins. And, you know, we'd been in Baltimore for a while and it was nice to see some a new part of the country. And it, it's, uh, and so we were in Boston and, and it turns out that, you know, I'll kind of, talk about that next chapter in a little bit. But, you know, after all of that, um, I ended up in Boston and uh, started the work of helping invest and in found new companies. And it turns out in retrospect, that's exactly what I was meant to be doing. And now it's been 15 years on and you know, nine companies later, um, it seems like the right call. But I really had no idea about that until kind of partway through that journey as I started doing it. I think a lot of our listeners can relate to this theme of having complementary experiences and getting a broader view across healthcare. Certainly an incredibly impressive list of different experiences you put together. As you transition into the role of Atlas, would love to hear what that initial transition was like, as well as how some of those experiences in early stage company creation really laid the groundwork for your future career. Yeah, absolutely. And one point I'd emphasize is that Every experience I had in that kind of circuitous road to Atlas ended up stacking on top of each other and being exquisitely helpful, both at Atlas, but also now that, uh, you know, I'm involved in running companies uh, on the on the executive side. Um, and, you know, I didn't know it at the time. I, I 
kind of instinctually instinctively gravitated towards the Atlas folks because one, they 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 you know we just hit it off in terms of our interaction. Second was just by the nature of what a VC firm does, you get to see a lot of movies at once, both within the existing portfolio and also the deal flow that came. At the time, Atlas was making its transition from a more traditional kind of later stage or arm's length VC model to company formation. And that was some of the early experiences. I did a little bit of new company formation. Uh, The first company I ever worked on ended up becoming Nimbus Therapeutics, which has had a very successful, um, you know, over a decade of operation now. Also worked on some kind of more traditional deals and also was involved in in supporting the portfolio. And over time, ended up taking a, a board seat or two, given it was a large portfolio and a small team. And and I think that, you know, again, sort of as I look back on it, each one of those movies I saw has been exquisitely helpful. I guess the, the, the fundamental advice I would give is that when I was uh, an MBA candidate, there's a lot of tendency to try to, quote unquote, rationally plan one's future career and kind of go, well, I'm going to do this internship and therefore it's going to position me for that job and that job's going to and it turns out that you're making those choices in a exquisitely dynamic environment, number one. Number two is it's amazing how much I overestimated my ability to know my future preferences 10 years in the future. And so my opinion looking back is not because of any smart choices, but just dumb luck. I ended up in all of those experiences, whether it was Genentech or McKinsey or uh, Atlas, ended up working with folks who are willing to teach me and willing to let me make mistakes. And by making those mistakes and learning everything that the experiences had, I was pretty well positioned to make some good choices for myself as I started to get closer to what I really wanted to do. And and so I, I think you're asking for a really good reason, though I would say that just not really a rational plan. The choices that, in my opinion, folks should make are who they want to work with, and how can they maximize the breadth per unit time of what they're doing when they're working? And to me, that was really important. You know, I probably saw over 100 deals my first year at Atlas. You know, it was involved in parallel with either listening to or being involved in over a dozen companies' operational decisions. And, you know, especially as we started getting into company formation later in my career at Atlas, seeing that many movies in parallel really accelerated my learning curve such that when, and again, no, no smart plan, organically, it became evident to me that I wanted to run with companies we built further. Those experiences served me so well in terms of kind of having a data set that I could draw on because what we do in, in any kind of healthcare entrepreneurship, but in particular drug development is so variable right? You're taking a variable enterprise, which is seeing if science can work to help sick people feel better and putting it on top of another variable enterprise, which is trying to seek money from the capital markets. And a third variable enterprise, which is doing that within a dynamic political economy. And you're trying to manage all of those non-correlated or sometimes correlated factors at once. And having seen a lot of movies helps you because you just never know what you're going to get thrown. On that exact topic, was curious if you could share some of the challenges you learned to overcome during that early formative time at Atlas. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, what one of them and a lot of your listeners who are coming out of, uh, you know, graduate training or business school training is the balance between being credible 
when you are a little bit, and, you know, in my experience at Atlas, very often, I was probably a few years less experienced than what the companies required me to do. And how do you find the balance between being humble enough to know that you really don't know anything you've got to learn, but confident enough to take what you know and do the best you can with it? Because if you won't, no one else will. You know, I I was in the position where you know, I was, what, 29, and I had to represent the firm on a, at a board where everyone else was double my age, you know, if if that. And in a contentious situation for a company that was in difficult straits where the current investment board didn't have any capital to give them, but still had to do right by the company. And so you kind of overlay that difficult situation where the management team didn't want anything to do with the board. And here I come, number one, with no history with that management team. And number two, uh, you know, really had to think hard about why it is that someone who feels that they've had 30 years in the business should listen to me you know, a couple of years out of business school. And, and I think that a lot of, and I'll put in a maybe somewhat shameless plug for my book, Quiet Leader, Loud Results, because a lot of the book goes into this. It's finding each person's journey about how you're effective, but also authentic. You know, my observation is that folks that are early, myself included, kind of vacillate between two poles when they're put in positions where they have to be credible, but they may not internally know why. Uh, so one is that you overcompensate and you make more of the accomplishments you have, or you assume that by being louder than everybody else, that makes you credible. The other pole, and both aren't right for different reasons, is that you kind of retreat. You know, you say, if you, if you can't say something smart, don't say anything at all. And you end up not doing right by, you know, the constituents, uh, ultimately patients who need new medicines that, that put you there. And I think the key is being unafraid to find that balance and being unafraid to sometimes sound stupid, look wrong and and deal with it and learn. Because, you know, what I've learned now, now that, you know, I'm here and I'm observing this phenomenon is that whether you try to hide it and you might spend hours and hours and days trying to plan how you're going to hide it. People know you're early in your career. They just know, you know, it's it's obvious and and that's OK. Your firm puts you there for a reason. Own it and and go with it. And, and I, I my advice would be that, you know, find the style that works for you. No style is the same. And people know immediately if the style you've chosen is not the one that's true to you. Thank you for sharing that and encourage all of our listeners to check out your recent book as well. I wanted to ask about the transition you made after Atlas Ventures. You decided to ultimately join Sparrow Therapeutics as the CEO. We'd love to hear about that decision and some of the challenges you're tackling in antibiotic resistance. Yeah. So um, so my career at Atlas was a few chapters. The first five years, I was part of the investment team, started as an associate, moved up to principal, and then and made, you know, and then moved up to, to venture partner. Um, you know, during that time, Atlas had closed a, a, a new fund and um, and you know, the model had squarely shifted from kind of more arms length investing to new company formation. And that has, is what, how the company was was working. So my work, this was, you know, probably 2013 through 2016 was identifying, you know, those kind of bits of technology, entrepreneurs, and programs that could make companies. And in that time, I was involved with the formation of three of them. 
One is Synlogic, which is public and has programs in phase two. The other one is Rodan Therapeutics, which is focused on an epigenetic mechanism for Alzheimer's that ultimately has gone into the clinic and sold to Alchemies. And the third is Sparrow, uh, which is focused on infectious disease uh, and now has multiple programs in the clinic and a partnership with GSK. Um, and those three, and along with them, um, I did some other things. Those three seem to get the most traction. And over those three years, we built uh, management teams around them. We syndicated them, um, Rodan with Johnson & Johnson Development Corporation, uh, Synlogic with New Enterprise Associates, and uh, Sparrow with SR1, among others, and Lundbeck Fund. And you know, it got to this point, which was around 2015 or so, 2016, where all three program companies were doing great. All three program companies had done a partnership with the big pharma. All three had syndicated. All three had boards we'd recruited, including independents. So all of our boards were thrilled, but they were nervous because they said, how are you going to run all three of these at the scales? I said, no, no, I got this. And I had, you know, a, at the time I had a two-year-old and four-year-old at home, plus three companies I was trying to run at the same time. And my wife had a full-time job. And so, you know, I wouldn't admit it, but at some point I kind of had to say, well, yeah, I'm three of me is not going to run this if this is really going to scale. And so for me, in my mind, I, I was just thinking, again, no no master plan. I actually hadn't really thought much about running a company for any particular length. So I really had a choice. Am I going to replace myself and do this again? Or am I going to put my hat in the ring, which is a little scary because the boards hadn't really thought of me as a full-time CEO, put my hat in the ring and say, okay, I'm going to do this. And you know, for me, uh, to kind of the way I divided my time at the time was I spent about a third of the week at each company. So did the executive team meetings at each company. And kind of whatever the company did, if they were doing a partnership, I'd jump into negotiations. If they were doing a financing, I'd help out with that and, and kind of split my time wherever things were needed. And over time, I, I've kind of found that, you know, I just really wanted to hang out more and more at one place, which ended up being Sparrow. Thank you for that insight into your entrepreneurial journey. I think it would be helpful also to talk a bit about some of the unique challenges of developing antibiotics, given development timelines, reimbursement, and some of the other complications that make it different from maybe other drugs folks might be familiar with. Yeah. So the the and and I've worked on on different things. So you know, Arteus, which we co-founded and and ultimately sold to Eli Lilly, was a traditional antibody therapeutic. Synlogic, uh, it, which is a bespoke bacterial, a synthetic biotic therapy. So it's an engineered bacterium that does therapeutic work in the body. Uh, Sparrow has both small molecules and peptide drugs and, and Nimbus was all small molecule. So I've seen, you know, the kind of puts and takes of both small molecules and biologics, um, you know, and I think that over time, these modalities, especially biologics have matured to the point that there's really not, you know, there's different technical risks, but not differential technical risks. You're not really taking modality risk on antibodies as much anymore. You may be taking it on CRISPR or other, other you know, more bespoke mo modalities, but even that is becoming less and less so as we're learning more about how to deliver these things to deliver with lipid nanoparticles and other things. So I, I think that kind of the broader risks of drug development tend to have kind of converged between biologics and small molecules, unless you're talking about some of the more novel modalities like cell therapies and gene therapies, which we're still working out. I think that for both of those, the there is a, um, you know, it's, 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 it's shooting at a moving target on a moving platform. Why? Be because 
there are so many multivariate inputs that go into developing a drug between doing the right experiments, keeping in mind what the regulators say now and what they might be open to in the future, um, thinking about a dynamic competitive environment and thinking about a dynamic environment for getting your work done in terms of clinical trials and toxicology studies. And it's a series of multivariate steps, each with their own risks. And when you kind of multiply all those risks together, it's amazing any of us kind of get out of bed every morning to do this. But, you know, I would say that in the big picture, uh, and I've, now I've seen this all the way from the test tube to NDA filing, um, just the magic of what, what all of us do is kind of amazing. Because when you think about it, you have to go to something that's a good idea on paper. You have to understand whether it's going to be useful for patients, both commercially, whether it's going to be reimbursed whether patients are going to want to take this in their bodies during clinical trials, whether people are going to come work with you to do it, and whether someone's going to finance it. And every you know, day, essentially, you're making those, uh, refining those assumptions real time with data. So, you know, it's incredibly risky. I think that, you know, it, but it's knowable and it's doable. And I think both with good portfolio theory and by hiring the right people, you can absolutely manage those risks around you. Yeah, that makes sense. On this topic of managing risk and thinking about the landscape around you, could you speak to Sparrow Therapeutics' unique positioning when it comes to antibiotic development? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, our vision at Sparrow it was you know, not, it was pretty simple, which was, you know, back when I was a, a med student, I, as you might have noticed from my career trajectory, I have kind of a limited patience and, and a short attention span sometimes. And so I really enjoyed those clinical problems where you saw pretty quick gratification from, which is kind of ironic when you think about how long drug development takes. But at the time, I, I really enjoyed surgical oncology because you could excise a tumor and expand someone's lifespan. I enjoyed ophthalmology because you could take out a cataract or fix someone's glaucoma and they can see. And I enjoyed ID because you could hang the right bag of an IV drug and someone who was intubated might be having breakfast with their kids two days later. And so kind of thinking that through, um, I noticed observationally and noticed for a while that the pace of new therapeutics, both in terms of deals we saw at Atlas and what I was seeing in terms of the medical literature, was really slow in terms of new antibiotics coming. And obviously, we all did our micro class in med school and know that that's not a great solution as bugs evolve. And so, you know, the reason that, um, so it had been in the back of my mind, if I could have the chance to do something in antibacterials for a while, what was difficult was that in the past, the, the, the FDA, that particular division of the FDA was pretty stringent about needing two large phase three trials for every antibiotic. And from a venture capital perspective, that's difficult, right? In that you don't know whether you've reached the pinnacle for an antibiotic until you've done two expensive phase threes. And in venture capital dollars, that's not a great way uh, to think about your investment construction. What changed was in 2013 with the passage of something called the GAIN Act, which gave the FDA permission to treat um, antibacterial drug development more like orphan drug development. So uh, single trials, faster trials, the opportunity for smaller trials when you're meeting unmet need. And for us, that was a green light and said, wow, now on venture capital style dollars, we might be able to figure out something useful about these antibiotics. And so it was really kind of, well, if we can do it, let's do it, which is let's try to find some interesting science uh, that we can get for low upfront money. And the science will tell us early whether we've got a winning antibiotic or not, which is the nice thing about antibiotics. And that's what kind of led to a portfolio. And over time, we learned why uh, there are so few innovative uh, opportunities in antibacterials. And the reason is that you get what you pay for as a society. 
right? So the reason that we have an, in my opinion, an oversupply of drugs per target in oncology is because oncology reimbursement is really Cadillac style. There's less payer review and people's kind of barometer for what they'll pay per unit of month of survival is just higher. And cancer patients need drugs. Don't get me wrong. I, I think that that's the point is that we've societies decided that we're willing to pay for the very best, even a month or three months or nine months of extra survival for these patients. We have not decided the same in ID. So what happens is that, you know, ID drugs in the hospital um, are paid out of this fixed fee that hospitals get. So when you come into the hospital with pneumonia, hospital is going to get certain tens of thousands of dollars reimbursement, no matter whether you stay in the hospital a day or you stay for 14 days. And so if you're paying, it's kind of like getting a hundred bucks for two weeks and asked to make it last. You're not going to go splurge a hundred bucks at dinner the first night. You're going to go eat at McDonald's and stretch it as long as you can. I know I was on a government per diem for my first year out of college and I did that. And so that's what happens with, with hospital-based drugs and antibiotics is that these hospitals have will bankrupt themselves if they invest in innovation early. And so what happens is even if the drug's right for patients, hospitals have a difficult choice and often opt to start with cheaper generics first. And so what that means is that when pharma looks at this and biotech, they say, well, these products, I could invest the same dollars in a product that grows five years more slowly and perhaps sells half as much at peak as a drug in inflammation or oncology, and they just don't. So our innovations at Sparrow were not just about good science, and we have to go where the patients are and where there's no approved drugs, but also about the business model which is we kind of said, well, that doesn't seem right. There's got to be blockbuster drugs and antibacterials. Turns out there are. And they all happen to be reimbursed outside of the hospital. And so that became our grounding philosophy as we you know, really sat down to articulate it ahead of our IPO, which was, well, we understand. And it just sucks that society isn't willing to pay for the drugs we'll need a year or two, five years from now as bacteria evolve. But we still feel like there's an important unmet need for patients. So we're going to focus on those things that reimbursement system pays us for. And those are orals. So as you look at our portfolio, it's all late stage oral medicines that meet an unmet need that generics don't. And that's how we've thought about uh, the unique value proposition for Sparrow. And it served us well as we've you know built the company through multiple financings. It served us well as we've attracted you know multiple pharma partners and as we built our team. Yeah, on this topic of of orals, could you touch on the the patient populations and indications you're going after as well? Yeah, and exactly. So so our philosophy generally, and we'll look all over the world for innovation, is to start with unmet needs first. And as we looked in that kind of matrix, so high unmet need reimbursement systems that are supportive of us being able to create a sustainable company, there were a couple of things that jumped out. The the first is the need for uh, novel oral agents for urinary tract infections. And so, you know, over 30 years since we've had a new oral for UTIs, and in those 30 years, unsurprisingly, bacteria have become resistant to the point that there's 3 billion people each year that fail oral therapy for UTI. My mother's one of them who's going through this right now. And so, you know, it's not for lack of trying, but the science has not been able to deliver an oral agent with good bioavailability and good potency against these and the consequence is that you get a lot of unnecessary hospitalization, a lot of unnecessary doctor visits. And so we identified an agent called Tepipenem that was invented in Japan. It has great potency and good oral bioavailability. We've been able to get it through a phase three that was published in the New England Journal of Medicine and now have partnered it with GSK, who will help us bring it all the way home to patients. 
So that's one on met need. And the second one I'd highlight is another one that was on our radar screen. So if that's the number one uh, bucket of patients that can really benefit from a new antibiotic, the number two largest bucket is a subset of patients who have a uh, disease called NTM. The reason it's a large bucket of patients is because it's an orphan population, about 100,000 patients in the U.S. that need therapy for many, many months. You know, the, the Tebby Penham bucket is 3 million UTI patients that need two weeks of therapy. So two large unmet needs. So we identified an agent from uh, Vertex Pharmaceuticals. They didn't know it was a great agent for NTM. We did figure it out. And we've been developing it in the clinic ever since. Uh, these patients have no approved therapies when they're newly diagnosed. And, you know, they essentially, NTM is this kind of cousin of tuberculosis that's ubiquitous in our environment. When you took a shower, actually the main line of Philly has a high concentration of NTM in their water lines, uh, just so you know. And the uh, the most of us with intact immune systems will clear that bug right out. Some of us don't. And these patients ultimately become infected. They get shortness of breath. They get debilitating pain. And ultimately, they die a lot sooner than patients that don't have NTM. So we have an oral agent entering phase two trials that is meant to be the first oral first-line treatment uh, if it's successful for these patients. You had mentioned the GSK partnership. Wanted to move briefly to sort of the, the macro environment for funding in biotech. Given this current times, how has Sparotherapeutics found alternative ways to drive cash runway and progress your science? You know, the, the Sparotherapeutic story, uh, antibiotics, uh, I don't have to tell you, is in the scheme of things that folks invest in biotech, not the sexiest of areas. So, you know, even when, quote, there were, you know, capital was more flush, Sparrow has had to be, uh, do a few things right in order to continue to capitalize the business. You know, we've raised over, a, I believe now, and, you know, uh, my math is right or wrong, but around $250 million of financing over, over our history. And that's not including pharma partnerships or public partnerships and the like. And, and, you know, it's required us to do a few things that I think everyone has to do when capital is tight. One is be very precise about our value proposition. Um, so again, you know, really dialing in and saying we're only working on, we're only, you know, investing your capital investor in those arenas that both marry this financial sustainability with clinical unmet need. So that's number one and being very precise about it and repeating it until people understood it. Second is hitting our marks all the time. So, you know, building that track record and, and showing that we can deliver when, when you do give us the capital. And third, as you're alluding to, is complement what we can get from the investment community with other sources. And so we've raised over $100 million in committed public financing from agencies such as BARDA and the National Institutes of Health. And we've done some thoughtful partnerships, including with GSK and Pfizer. And, and I think that as we kind of extrapolate that to the current environment where everyone is dealing with capital sex scarcity and arguably all biotech isn't sexy at the moment while interest rates go up, I believe that those are the right lessons. You know, again, number one, be crystal clear in your value proposition and really refine it based on what investors are telling you. Two is, above all else, execute and deliver. And then number three is be creative and proactive and plan years ahead for in money that doesn't come from investors' pockets. Because, you know, I've, I've been on that side of the table too. It's difficult, you know, when you as an investor are, especially a public investor that gets buffeted as much as we do, if not more, by all of the wins that the macro environment has. 
you know, imagine that you're a public investor and we, we, we work with several that we respect and you have done everything right. You've kind of curated your portfolio, right? You've picked the winners, you put more capital into them. You've done your homework. You know, as much as the management team about the company. And then the Fed raises interest rates and all your stocks start to go down and then they start to go way down. That's a terrible place to be. Why? Because many of these folks have an agreement with their LPs where the LPs can pull the money whenever they want. And so imagine trying to build a platform when people can just keep pulling bricks out of you. It's like standing out of the top of a Jenga tower while trying to do multivariable calculus. And so I empathize with them and we have to do the same thing as we run uh, companies. And I feel that we've had to do that at Sparrow for, you know, since we've been around and that's going to serve us well now too. Thank you for that insight into your view on the the capital markets and fundraising in this climate. You had also touched on the political landscape and wanted to get your thoughts on how upcoming acts such as disarm and pasture might affect antibiotic development and what your thoughts are on using regulatory changes as a lever for innovation. Yeah, I mean, and this is a, a fascinating question, Carmen, because it, it kind of going back to that, you know, our discussion about all of the different kind of rocks I hopped on to get here helped me. And so my time on the Hill was actually exquisitely helpful, giving me some perspective on this. Uh, so I think two things, and I kind of hold them together. So so the first is that, you know, at Sphera, we are all, uh, we are fierce advocates and we'll do what what we can, everything we can to make sick people with infections feel better. And I think that being supportive of any legislation that incentivizes infectious disease drug development is a good thing for patients. And so we're all for it. Uh, the second thing is the pragmatist in me, which is that having been on the other side, I know how long these things take to come to fruition. And so we do not run our business at Sparrow expecting or hoping for any such legislation. The oral medicines we talked about do not, they depend on the current reimbursement system, not the one that we wish it could be. So that's number two. And, and number three, I would say that we've kind of crossed the journey here, right? So back when the GAIN Act passed, we were discussing with our lawmakers. I remember doing a, a briefing for, for, for congressional staffers on this. We were discussing appropriate solutions. We're now at the point that there's two very good crystallized solutions, Pasteur and Disarm. Uh, Pasteur is the one that you know we kind of lean towards because it's broad and comprehensive. And essentially, it's kind of the Netflix model for any bacterial drug development, which is the government, you know, should the uh, drug developer develop agents that hit a high unmet need, there's an agreed upon upfront payment that's credited against Medicare revenues or reimbursements downstream that can incentivize people. Why is that good? Because you don't have to wait until peak sales many years hence. You know what the, your return on investment is going to be. And hopefully that would bring both large pharma and biotechs back to develop medicines, especially in the hospital where we just can't right now. So, you know, that's all great. I would say that right now it's kind of a critical time because, you know, we're about, you know, as of this recording, 24 hours away from knowing whether there's a Democratic majority in both houses or not. And I think that we just have to take a more medium term horizon on the likelihood of passing if, as the polls suggest, we're not going to be. I think there are some very strong bipartisan component proponents for this. I think it's just going to take time. Why? Because I feel that our Congress has pretty big frish to fry just in terms of drug pricing reform and the like, and the broader currents of kind of figuring out what the Inflation, Inflation Reduction Act mean and everything else. Yeah. I think this has been an incredible conversation diving into your career story and the work you're doing at Sparrow. 
as part of our role at LifeSciB, we try to educate some of the up and coming professionals in the realm of biotech. Throughout your career experience, you've clearly been a part of many teams founding over nine biotech companies. Could you speak about some of the lessons you've learned within this sector and what advice you would give people looking to become leaders or investors in early stage biotechnology companies? Yeah, Karen, thanks. And, and certainly have thought a lot about this. And, and some of those principles are, you know, within within the book, I, I think it goes back to something we were talking about earlier in our conversation, which is, I think that the core of effective teams, and whether that's an, being part of an effective board or effective management team or an effective investment team, is being authentic to who you are. And it's the core of everything, you know, and sort of the other way people think about it is trust. You know, it's intuitive that teams that trust each other tend to perform better. And the research suggests that's true. It turns out that a core part of trust is authenticity. It's easy for people to trust you when they know you are who you say you are. And I think that what I've learned as we form teams, both at Sparrow and other places, is that a lot of the early work you have to do is give people opportunities to really show themselves for who they are. And, you know, that's both in terms of fighting adversity together, um, but also being intentional about that. And especially now when hybrid work is becoming more the norm, um, it was a lot simpler and perhaps more familiar when it was the norm to go to the office five days a week. Because you just kind of rub elbows with people, you see what you're doing, and you go through the trenches together. Now, I'd say that the primary advice I'd give is it takes intention to build that authenticity and trust amongst each other. And there's different tools, some of which I go in the book about doing so virtually, you know, and number one and number two, modeling that as a leader. If you yourself are not forthcoming with who you really are, how do you expect anyone that follows you to do that? And, and I think that a lot of the thematics are, you know, really flow from there. And when you are who you say you are, your team's more likely to be who they say they're going to be. And people are more likely to join teams that say who are who they say they are. And it's sometimes it's just really hard to articulate, but it tends to be this gravitational effect. And you don't have to be loud and you don't have to be salesy and you don't have to be, you know, whatever you see in Silicon Valley or on TV shows about how people are, you know, you just got to be you and people got to know that it's you and, and they tend to follow you, especially if your intentions are bigger than you. And I would say that's the second thing is authenticity is the one. Humility is the other. And I think that smart people who have choices want to work for people who are trustworthy and people who are not in it just for themselves. And one of the luxuries we have, and I remember this, maybe you did too, at, you know, in, at McKinsey, I had the, I guess, privilege of working on something that wasn't healthcare. I think it was toilet paper or something like that. And, and it's just a lot easier to get excited about something bigger than yourself when you're developing medicines to treat sick patients than it is trying to sell more toilet paper. And so I think we have some inherent advantages in the life sciences and we really should use them because I think it really helps the team uh, get focused on the big picture. Thank you so much for, for joining us here on LifeSide Beat and sharing with us, you know, various thoughts and points in your career. I um, really hope you have a great week and I, I'm sure our listeners are going to really enjoy this episode. Thanks, Karen. It was a lot of fun. Thank you.